Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Pastor Kevin Canterbury has a message titled, We Will Tell the Next Generation. Join us in Psalms chapter 78, verses 1 through 7. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you again. We're talking about parenting this morning. We've covered lots of things surrounding the family during this series, uh, Summer with the Family. And so we're coming to the end of that. And this morning, I want to look at some texts in the Old Testament uh, and show you what I think the essence and the purpose of Christian parenting is all about. And here's a hint for you. It's not about where your kid's going to go to college or what career they're going to have or what level they're going to achieve in their career. All of those are really significant choices that we have to make, things that a lot of people stress over. We spend so much time on that. But when it all comes down to it, the thing that really matters is how actively and obediently we disciple our children and how well they do the same for their children. That's the one thing that all of us are going to have to give an account for someday. Maybe that takes the pressure off the, the college choice. Probably not. It's still still out there. But at least I hope that you walk away with a greater sense of God's design for us as parents and the importance of teaching our children about scripture, the entire scripture. So have your Bibles ready this morning because we're going to be jumping around quite a bit. And I hope you guys are better than the eight o'clock service. Every time I told them to open their Bibles, I heard like three pages flip. So guys are better though. Anyways, here we go. Throughout the story of Israel, God sends prophets and judges to call his people to repentance and to warn them of the consequences of disobeying his laws. And sometimes we think that the people of Israel knew God and, and just rebelled, but there's these large periods throughout Israel's history where they just forgot about him altogether. They forgot about him. There's this account in 2 Kings chapter 22. I want you to turn there. 2 Kings 22, it's about a, a very young king named Josiah. Maybe you've heard of him. And Josiah is only eight years old when he becomes king. And he reigns in Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Remember last week, Pastor Ben used another Old Testament passage. And he talked about the southern and the northern kingdom, the two kingdoms, not the Lord of the Rings movie. But Judah is oftentimes a name that we refer to the southern kingdom. And, um, and then you have that northern kingdom as well. So Josiah rules in the kingdom of Judah, and he's ruling during the period between Solomon and the Babylonian exile. It's this stretch of time that uh, First and Second Kings lays out. And it says he's the one that most follow God. He's actually regarded as perhaps their best king because of that. And what sets Josiah apart from everybody else is the way that he reacts to God's law. So this is going to be during the 18th year of his reign. Remember, 31 years of reign. He's eight when he takes, uh, when he ascends to the throne. I don't know if you guys have eight-year-olds. I have an eight-year-old right now. Holy cow, that kid can't even make his bed. So um, <clears throat> I love him, but that's eight-year-olds. So I don't know how this worked, but 18 years. He's 26 years old, and that's where this passage picks up. 2 Kings 22, uh, verse 8 through 13 this is what it says. Hilkiah, the high priest, informed Shaphan, the scribe, I found the scroll of the Lord in the Lord's temple. Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. 
Shaphan the scribe went to the king and reported, your servants melted down the silver in the temple and handed it over to the construction foreman assigned to the Lord's temple. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. Shaphan read it out loud before the king, and when the king heard the words of the law scroll, he tore his clothes. The king ordered Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, if you guys know my daughter Micaiah, uh, her, this father of this person is who she's named after, uh, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant. So, as seems to be the pattern in Israel, there was a failure for the previous generation to pass down and to teach this current generation what God had done through the generations before. Josiah's father, Amon, did not follow the Lord and did evil. Amon's father, Manasseh, was one of the most wicked kings, did not follow the Lord. And so the scroll, the word of the Lord, had been boxed up. It had been put on a shelf, and it had been forgotten. It's great-grandpa's old Bible. Josiah is king for 18 years before the scroll is discovered. 18 years. And his response is what makes him a great king because his response is remorse and sorrow. He tears his clothes. And if you know anything about the Jewish tradition, you know, they didn't have targets back then to go buy clothes at. Uh, having clothes was a big deal. Maybe not for a king, but it was out of that um, sense of value and the rarity of having multiple garments that tearing a garment was a big deal. It was a sign to them of uh, expressing holy outrage. Josiah's undone by the knowledge that God's law has been shelved and forgotten. And he immediately recognizes that. And his, he uh, takes responsibility. He acts accordingly as king. So after reading the scroll, after hearing it read to him, Josiah uh, sends this group of his leaders, his priests, his scribes, to a prophetess to understand what the words of the scroll mean. By the way, the fact that they find a prophetess, a woman, tells you something about the state of the nation. And this goes back to something I talked about two weeks ago with the roles in the family. But it's an indictment on the leadership of the men because there wasn't a man that could be found to fill that role. And so uh, when men fail to lead, God will fill those roles with capable women. And God does that here. And so that's an indictment on the leadership there. It's no accident. You should pay attention to stuff like that. And so after a warning about the pending disaster that awaits the people, uh, this prophetess tells the men that God has seen the humility of the king, he's heard his plea, and that God's going to allow King Josiah to die in the land of his fathers, right? Which was uh, uh, to not do that. To be killed in battle somewhere else was a dishonor. But he's still going to bring judgment on the rest of the people because the people still bear responsibility, right? Then in uh, 23, chapter 23, verse 2 through 3, it says this, The king went up to the Lord's temple, accompanied by all the people of Judah, all the residents of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets. All the people were there from the youngest to the oldest. He read aloud all the words of the scroll of the covenant that had been discovered in the Lord's temple. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant before the Lord, agreeing to follow the Lord and to obey his commands, laws, and rules with all his heart and being by carrying out the terms of this covenant recorded on the scroll. All the people agreed to keep the covenant. 
There's a couple times this has happened. Another uh, time that it happened was with Ezra, where he read the entire lot of the people, and they wept and went through a period of mourning. Again, they've forgotten who God is. Jumping ahead to verse 25, it says this about Josiah. No king before or after repented before the Lord as he did with his whole heart, soul, and being in accordance with the whole law of Moses. If you know what the word repentance means, it, it means to completely turn and go the other direction. Josiah completely turned and went the other direction. Now we're going to follow the Lord's. This day uh, will follow the Lord. And so where Josiah's father had failed, where his grandfather and his great-grandfather had failed, he stepped into the gap. What is this story about King Josiah, a, a Bronze Age ruler in Palestine? What does it have to tell us about parenting? Well, we're going to look at Psalm 78 right now, so I want you to turn there. And that's going to tell us what this has to do with parenting and how we tie it together. That's going to be our key text this morning. Psalm 78 is written uh, by a guy named Asaph. It says that right at the beginning. He's a Levite in David's court. He's actually a worship leader. Okay, so he's a guy that, that sings. I don't know if they wore skinny jeans back then. I'm not curious if they had little trendy things. But anyways, this is Asaph. This is what he says. So this is before King Josiah, right? This is well before he becomes king. It says, pay attention, my people, to my instruction. Listen to the words I speak. I will sing a song that imparts wisdom. I will make insightful observations about the past. What you have heard and learned, that which our ancestors have told us, we will not hide from their descendants. Put it on the bookshelf. We will tell the next generation about the Lord's praiseworthy acts, about his strength and the amazing things that he has done. He established a rule in Jacob. He set up a law in Israel. He commanded our ancestors to make his deeds known to their descendants so that the next generation, children yet to be born, might know about him. They will grow up and tell their descendants about them. Then they will place their confidence in God. They will not forget the works of God, and they will obey his commands. Amen. Well, the generations before Josiah, they failed to pass this down. They failed to tell their children about the knowledge and the praises of God. And as a result, they walked in ignorance and under God's judgment. Josiah served 18 of his 31 years, almost two-thirds of his reign um, in ignorance before he found God's law and read it to the rest of the people. Can you imagine how angry Josiah must have been with his father, his father's father? You never told me any of this, and now I have to not only lead myself through my repentance and my family, but an entire nation, all the heartache that could have been saved, but you didn't tell me. The generations before Josiah didn't just walk away from God. They gradually grew apathetic towards their obligations and their responsibilities. It was these small steps. It was spiritual laziness wrought over generations. And then it's the dusty Bible on the shelf. Perhaps, as we often do, it becomes a, a national symbol of some bygone era. I still think today, even as messed up as our culture is, there's still this sort of sense that the Bible is a holy book and that it's tied into us. But it's the book that we're talking about. So I want to start out 
right now, this morning, by giving you three primary responsibilities that are expected, required of all Christ followers. This is regardless of whether you have children in the home or you don't, or if you don't have children at all. This is a community responsibility. You don't have an opt-out. There's no Del Webb area in the church 55 and older where it doesn't apply to you. It's an obligation towards the next generation. And we're going to briefly look at a few stories that teach us something about the role of parents in God's kingdom. So we're going to do kind of the opposite of what we usually do. Normally, we'll lay out the thing, and then we'll get the points. I'm going to give you the three points right off the bat, and then we're going to look at these two stories in the Old Testament and tie them back in with the points. Three responsibilities of Christian parents. This is what they are. Our first responsibility is to steward the resources that God has placed in our care. Your children don't belong to you. They've been given to you for a time and for a purpose. And in a similar manner, you have a role to play when it comes to the children that are placed in your sphere of influence, even if they don't belong to you. It's why we do the parenting presentation thing, right? It's not about uh, this person up here. They're making a covenant as well and saying that they're going to raise their child. But then we also say we're going to come alongside you and help you with that because these are our children and it's our responsibility. Um, we've all had the experience of being at the store and watching a kid throw an epic tantrum, right? And you guys kind of look around at the other adults and everybody looks shameful and kind of does this. That's usually when my wife says, hey, go get our son. He's on the floor. Um, We've all been there. But in God's kingdom, we share the responsibility. It's not, uh, it is not just the role of the parent, though that is their primary responsibility. It's our responsibility as the church, as the people of God, as his chosen ones, Uh, to partner together to raise up the next generation. We are stewards. We are not owners. Our second responsibility, according to this psalm, which flows out of the first, is to tell our children about the praises of God. This is the reason that God placed them in your care and in your family And what I want you to notice is that this isn't about passing lifeless historical information down to your children. You're supposed to tell them about the praises. It's about living out a joy-filled, spirit-filled, God-glorifying life of praise before your children and teaching them through shared personal experience and joy about all that God has accomplished and the hope of what is to come and what he will accomplish. Teaching them that they are a part of something so much bigger than themselves. The same God who spoke to the prophets of old is alive and active in the church, and the best is yet to come. The story is just beginning. It's the praises of God. Finally, our third responsibility is to teach and to instruct God's word. And we accomplish this by helping our children find the answers to the questions and Uh, that they're asking and being able to answer those questions and point them in the right direction. And it doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers. I think it's really good when you don't have all the answers and you can say, I don't know the answer to that. Let's figure it out together. And you can guide your kids through that process. But if we're not equipped with some level of knowledge, if we haven't created a good habit of on our own of ingesting God's word and of opening that Bible up every day, we can't help our kids navigate through it. And so we have to continue to grow in our knowledge as well. We have to commit to our own spiritual growth. 
And then finally, the most practical sense, we have to provide them with the resources and the materials. You know, it's sad how many kids come and don't have a Bible. Um, you know, see it in the student ministry and things like that. Kids just don't have a Bible. Now, there might be that old dusty Bible on the shelf that belonged to grandma and grandpa and got passed down, but no one's ever taken the time to talk to their kids about what is uh, what it is and, and given them the permission to use it. I mean, how crazy is that? There's people I've talked to who were taught to have a, a reverence and a respect for the Bible. It's, it's really ingrained into our American heritage and culture. That's a wonderful thing. But it never actually gets opened. It never gets read. It's a book that, that sits on the shelf. It doesn't get touched because it might get tainted. There's sort of a, a fear of it. How twisted and backwards is that? How many children have grown up in a home with a Bible that sat on their shelf only to die and go to hell? I mean, think about it. The truth, the gospel was literally 10 feet away from them during their most formative years. Nobody ever told them about it. That's a big parenting fail. The biggest parenting fail right there. God's word is alive and active, as it says in Hebrews. It's meant to be opened, read, written in, used. It's described as a weapon against spiritual warfare. It's a double-edged sword. Don't you want to give your kids a weapon to fight those battles? And yet it sits on the shelf in so many homes and gathers dust, just like it did during Josiah's childhood. How will they know if we don't teach them? I feel like I could just stop right there. It would be enough because if we all just did that, the rest would come, right? If we just got that right. I don't want to discourage you. I, I want to motivate you and catalyze you. I know there's a lot of you out here at Ville Christian Church who are doing this, who are teaching your kids. But it's easy to grow lazy and apathetic and let bad habits creep in. So there you go. There was the three points right there. And so now we're going to look at these two Old Testament stories, two biblical illustrations. And as Pastor Ben often says, we're going to draw the truth out of the text. And not only will it instruct us on how to apply the text as parents and as stewards, but it's also going to serve as an example to you of how to use the text, how to use the Word of God to teach and instruct your children and draw these principles out. And so the first story is the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I'm not going to give you too much background for time's sake, but this is the story of God testing Abraham's faith. And so uh, we find it in Genesis chapter 22. So turn there. Genesis 22. This is what it says. Sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will indicate to you. And so Abraham makes some preparations for this journey. And then in verse 9, we'll, we'll jump there. It says, when they came to the place God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac, placed him on the altar on top of the wood, so a quick side note here, many biblical scholars believe that um, Isaac had just come of age and was caught secretly texting a girl. And that, no, 
Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife and prepared to slaughter his son. But the Lord's angel came to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. You can hear that language foreshadowing in there already. Now, here's the thing that I know. If the Lord opens the door for you to share the gospel with someone, a coworker, a friend, a family member, you're probably not going to use this story to set the whole thing up, right? You're not. I know that for a fact. Nobody starts the conversation by saying, let me tell you the story about how Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Because it's a difficult passage, even for believers, especially for non-believers who don't understand the significance and the Christological foreshadowing that's happening there. And so, um, but I think these passages are often the passages that teach us the most, or the most profound and have the most meaning because they sort of mess with our human mind. We don't understand them. Um, it's a profound foreshadowing and a revealing of God's plan of salvation through the sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Uh, by the way, Abraham was a, was a pretty terrible father and husband in a lot of ways. A lot of those Old Testament patriarch figures were. They failed miserably. Um, it doesn't mean that he didn't do the right things, and it doesn't mean we can't learn from him. And um, we're seeing a snapshot of Abraham's life. It's moving, right? I mean, it starts out with that. After uh, some time had passed, it says, so Abraham's grown. He's become wiser. He's not the same Abraham that he was. He's learning and growing in the Lord. So what can we learn about parenting from this text? Well, here's a few things that this story can teach us that are going to tie back into these three points we laid out from Psalm 78. First one is this. Children are not our highest calling. Displaying God's glory is. Displaying God's glory is. Man, Abraham waited a long time for this child, didn't he? God promised he would come. He waited a long time. I'm sure he felt conflicted at best stressed out over this. But nonetheless, Abraham understood that he was created to display God's glory by being obedient. So he trusted God and he believed that about his son as well. The next thing is this. Abraham understood that children belong to God. God has a will and a purpose for them. And by the way, he doesn't need our opinion on that. He doesn't ask for it. This was the promised heir through which God's covenant promise to make a people for himself was going to pass. And Abraham understood that Isaac belonged to God first. And even if he didn't understand why God would do this, he trusted that God would be faithful to this promise that he had made to him and to his son and to his lineage. And God was. And finally, it shows us that God ordains the times and the methods. Abraham was a really, he was a really old guy at this point. Life had been hard. He waited a long time. He made some big mistakes along the way and was probably, as I said, much wiser, more spiritually mature. He's not the same Abraham that tried to take control and make this thing happen on his own through Hagar. He has learned the lesson what happens when you don't wait for the Lord's timing. You ever think about that? Something changed in him and now he he trusts and he waits upon the Lord, even when the Lord's methods don't make sense. They seem crazy. 
God knows exactly what he's doing and when he's going to do it. He's not reckless. I encourage you to read this story on your own and you can draw more truth out of it. It's a very profound story. Uh, Teach it to your kids and teach them about God's plan of salvation and the foreshadowing in this story. It's truly profound. The next story we'll look at is the story of Eli and Samuel. This is going to be found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. And if you haven't noticed all the twos in these passages, I don't know. It's a thing. So 1 Samuel 2, 22. Um, Samuel's a very important figure in the Old Testament. It's a pretty good indicator that you're important if you get a book named after you. And Samuel has two books, kind of, named after him. So... He's an important guy. Samuel's the prophet who anoints Saul as the first king and later anoints David, the greatest king, right? The Christ figure uh, king himself, he anoints. Eli, at this time, is the high priest in an area of Israel that's called Shiloh um, during the time of Samuel's birth. And Samuel comes from an it's complicated home. So his father has two wives. And if you read in the text, you can see how Samuel's mother Uh, Hannah is ridiculed by the other wife because she can't have any kids, right? I said this two weeks ago. It's not God's design to have more than one wife. It's one woman, one man. And every time you see that, you can see what mess it makes, right? So here we have. It's not God's design. He's still going to work through it to accomplish his purposes. And so uh, it has consequences, though. Hannah prays for a child. She promises that if God will give her a son, she'll offer him up to the service of God. God is faithful. He gives her Samuel. And so she presents Samuel to Eli, the high priest, for service in the temple, as she said she would do. Eli, the priest, has two sons who are also priests, Hophni and Phinehas. I think they had their own cartoon a while ago. Um, they, are, they are wicked guys. They're bad. They do bad stuff. Eli gets a big, fat F, minus, minus, for his parenting. He's in the hall of fails, but God still uses Eli to train up Samuel. And we don't know why God chooses Eli because he and his son still suffer the full judgment of God. This passage is a little graphic, but guys are in adult church. Had the chance to drop your kids off across the way. So here we go. First Samuel 2.22 says this. Now, Eli was very old when he heard about everything that his sons used to do to all the people of Israel and how they used to have sex with the women who were stationed at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you behave this way? For I hear about these evil things from all people. This ought not to be, my sons, for the report that I hear circulating among the Lord's people is not good. If a man sins against a man, one may appeal to God on his behalf. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But Eli's sons would not listen to their father, for the Lord had decided to kill them. And now the boy Samuel was growing up and finding favor both with the Lord and with people. Jumping ahead to verse 34, it says this. This will be a confirming sign for you that will be fulfilled through your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In a single day, they both will die. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He will do what is in my heart and soul. I will build him a secure dynasty and he will serve my chosen one for all time. God's methods, God's timing, right? 
It's exactly what we're seeing here. Here's the truth we can draw about parenting from this, even this text. Even in an imperfect situation, God can bring his will to pass for our children, especially many times in an imperfect situation. Hannah prayed, God listened. He was faithful to her. She was in a really tough situation and she prayed for her son and she lived into her role. God sovereignly brought his will to pass and he honored the promise that he made to her child. The next thing is this, if we fail to live into our role and to accept our responsibility, God will raise up someone to do it. He'll get it done. Eli failed, God prevailed. Super cheesy, right? When you do that, but that's what happened. He can't, or he can do it without us, but for some reason he chooses to do it through us. To teach us, it's that process of sanctification that we talk about. He's relational. He loves us. That's why he does it. And finally, I think this is a big point, and I want to camp on it for just a, a moment here. And it's this. Our children must choose to follow God of their own will. God has no grandchildren. I heard that from a pastor years ago and stuck with me. He only has children. Eli's sons were priests. They were dedicated at the temple. This was the Old Testament practice. Some of you grew up with infant baptism, and it kind of mirrors that. They were not justified by their father's faith. And I think he had some faith. He made a lot of mistakes and failures, but Eli and his sons were punished for their wickedness. That tells us this. God shows greater contempt to a parent who fails to train their child up in the way of the Lord than he does to a child who lives in ignorance like King Josiah did and repented. And God allowed him to, to um, be buried in the land of his fathers and live out his days. Remember that Josiah didn't have that knowledge until 26 years old is when he found those scrolls. So you must disciple your children. You must lead them and nurture them to develop their own faith. It doesn't matter if your last name is Graham or if you're, and your dad's name is Billy. Does anybody get that? I don't know. Like last service, nobody got it. <laughs> uh, you got to choose to trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ yourself, and your kids have to do that. We practice something here called believer's baptism. Many of you have been a part of it. It's an awesome thing that we do. Uh, believer's baptism uh, is fundamentally different than infant baptism, which is the tradition that some of you probably came from. Um, and it really came around during the time of the Reformation, that 16th century, because it's, an, it's identifying that you make the decision, right? It has to be your faith, not your parents' faith. That's why we do it. It's significant. And it's actually tied into our country historically. The Puritans brought that over here, and they're the ones that really founded our country. And so this idea of autonomy, and I get to choose, comes out of this idea of believer's baptism. And you're probably not going to learn that in school, but it's tied to it. What does it have to do with me? That's our third big point here. What does it have to do with me? We're going to look back now. We've looked at these two stories, pulled some truth out of them, and let's review. What does it have to do with me? Well, number one, it is your responsibility to, tech, uh, to tell the next generation. It is not just the church's responsibility or the staff. Each and every one of you in here has a responsibility to pass down and to share the knowledge and the praises of God. 
Number two, we must love the Lord first if we want our children to love and respect the Lord. If they don't see you doing it, don't expect them to do it. How sad is it? I've heard people say this. You know, I'm going to send my kid to church. I want him to have all that, but it's not really my thing. And you think that your kids are somehow going to get what they need here, but you don't have to do it. Now, God is sovereign. God works his purposes and his plan. Remember I said that? He'll raise somebody up to do it. He'll accomplish his will. And sometimes he chooses to take a kid who has parents who aren't teaching them, and he does give them the figures around them that will pass that knowledge on to them. But that person has failed in their responsibility to do it. Number three, we are stewards and not owners of our children for the limited time God has placed them in our care. You have no idea how long your kids will be in your house. I hate to think about it. Every parent thinks about it. What if something happens to my kid? You don't know how long you have. This is not something that can wait until after they're done with college and let's just have them focus on that. And then or after this period of time, this is something that needs to start today. It needs to happen now. You have no idea how long they'll be in your care. Number four, your faith does not secure your children's salvation. You cannot get into heaven riding on your parents' coattails, your grandparents or your great-grandparents. has to be yours. You've got to open up the word of God. Number five, God ordains the ends and works through us to accomplish them. God ordains the end, works through us. You're not in it alone. God's in it with you. He knows what he's doing. He's equipped you to do it. And related to that, number six is where there is sin, grace is greater. Where you have failed to do this. And we've all failed. We all fail. We're human. God's grace is not just enough. It's more than enough. It's more than sufficient to fill that gap. And so maybe you don't have, an, maybe you're like Hannah and you're in an unideal situation, right? But Hannah still does faithfully what God's asked her to do and he's faithful to her because of that. So if you've messed up in this area, if you haven't lived into this, if it hasn't been a priority for you, you've just got out of the habit of doing this, now's the time to repent like Josiah did. So I'm gonna take that dusty old Bible off the shelf and I'm gonna turn it into the weapon that God intended it to be used for so that my kids have that when spiritual warfare comes their way. So they know the words of God and we pass down our faith and the praises of God to the next generation. Let's pray. Lord, what an honor and a privilege and a, a huge responsibility it is to be a parent that you've entrusted us with image bearers that you created for your purpose and for your glory to serve you. And so help us to remember that and, and to trust you with our children, to know that you have a plan and that you've simply asked us to be faithful and to pass down your praises and to live out in front of them the joy of knowing you and the knowledge of knowing you. And so I pray for parents here who are intimidated uh, and, and might think they have to know everything. God, your grace is so great. Um, you come beside us and help them. What, what an awesome thing it is to see a new believer walk with their children as they both become disciples. So I pray for courage and boldness for parents, those who have failed in this area or those who've just not lived into it, who have got out of the habit. Convict them, Lord. Give them the strength and the power to do this 
We will tell the next generation what you've done. We will teach them. We will not be a generation before a forgotten generation, Lord. Help us, empower us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com. Dot com.